0: The thing about trade wars is that they're wars where where governments inflict damage on their own citizens in the hope of persuading the other government to stop inflicting damage on its citizens. It's a very bizarre war.
1: Welcome to the Mercatus Center Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. What do felt hats, flamethrowers, soybeans, and aluminum all have in common? They're all potential targets for new tariffs in the slowly escalating trade dispute between the United States and China. For some time, the U.S. has been trending towards freer and more open trade, culminating in the North American Free Trade Agreement and efforts to finalize the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But that trend may have come to an abrupt halt under an administration that has famously said trade wars are good and easy to win. Here to explain whether or not we're in a trade war already, what that means for the U.S. and China, and what U.S. policymakers should do going forward, are three experts in the field. First up, we're joined by Carolyn Baum, freelance journalist who contributes regularly to Market Watch. Thanks for joining us, Carolyn. Pleasure to be here. We also have both co-directors from the Ricada Center's Program on the American Economy and Globalization. First, Dan Griswold, welcome. Glad to be here. And Don Boudreaux, glad you could join us this afternoon.
0: Happy to be here, Chad.
1: So I just want to tee up the conversation because the timeline and sequence of events here are really important to understand what's going on. Can one of you just give me a 30-second overview of why people are Googling trade war (laughs) more than at any time since Google started keeping track of their searches?
2: I think the fuse got lit last year when the Trump administration started to investigate steel imports under a little used feature of, of the law called Section 232. And that gives a president the power to restrict imports that threaten national security. The Commerce Department under Wilbur Ross came out with a report in the president's hands. He decided to impose duties on imported steel. Nobody who has any knowledge of national defense thinks it was a legitimate report. Even the Defense Department said, don't do these broad tariffs. Make them more focused. China was one of the targets, even though they're the number 11 source of imported steel. But the Chinese have retaliated in kind. We put tariffs on about $3 billion worth of Chinese steel imports. They recently announced tariffs on $3 billion worth of U.S. exports to China. And then, raising at an exponential level, the Trump administration has a parallel investigation called Section 301, and that's sort of broad-based. You can use it against any country that's engaged in, quote, unfair trade practices. The Trump administration targeted Chinese intellect treatment of intellectual property, and they announced tariffs of $50 billion against imports from China. China immediately, I think it was basically within the same 24-hour news cycle, announced tariffs against $50 billion worth of U.S. exports to China. I think this is a pretty classic trade war, escalating tit-for-tat tariffs that – While they're aimed at the other country, they do just as much damage to the country imposing them. That's where we got where we're at.
0: I almost never disagree with my colleague Dan, but I would disagree with him a little bit there, (laughs) right? I don't think there's an equivalence between the damage. And I think most of the damage is done to the people in the country whose governments are imposing them. It's true that U.S. tariffs on – Americans who buy Chinese steel inflict some harm on the Chinese. But the main focus of the, of the damage really, and I know Dan does agree with this actually, the main people who incur that damage are Americans and the main people who incur the damage of the Chinese tariffs are innocent Chinese citizens. And so trade, the thing about trade wars is that they're wars where, where governments inflict damage on their own citizens in the hope of persuading the other government to stop inflicting damage on its citizens. It's a very bizarre war.
3: But you know, it's the one thing that Trump has, the one policy position that he has been adamant about, at least since the 1980s, that this is a trade is a zero-sum game, that we are losers, that countries take advantage of us. And it seems to me, by hook or by crook, even though he doesn't understand that the other side of the trade deficit is the capital inflow, that he is going to have his way.
2: Yeah, that's a great point, Caroline. He has been consistent. In some ways, that's a positive thing. At least there's something he really believes in and he's following through. <laughs> a man of principle. Uh, on the other hand, it means he's probably less likely to be dissuaded. I mean, he's held these questionable beliefs for 30 years. And unfortunately, he has surrounded himself with advisors that are just feeding his misinformed view of of trade
3: relations. And isn't he going to be disappointed given that the budget deficit is likely to blow up to according to estimates a $1 trillion in 2019, that, you know, there is some connection between the, the twin deficits.
2: This administration is full of ironies when it comes yeah. to trade. <laughs> One of the big ironies is at the same time that they welcome foreign investment into the United States and they're driving up the federal debt, which attracts foreign funds to buy treasury bonds, they complain about the trade deficit. Yeah,
1: yeah, it
0: is Definitely full of
2: ironies.
1: So so Carolyn kind of teed us up talking about twin deficits here. I want to make sure we're addressing this because trade deficits have really been at at least the rhetorical heart of of the escalating trade conflict. We have a trade deficit with China, it sounds like. Is that not a bad thing? Because it sounds like a bad thing to me.
0: There is no concept in all of economics and certainly no concept in the area of trade. That produces more confusion and more policy mischief than the so-called balance of, of payments of which the trade deficit is a part. The trade deficit is, in my view, a nearly meaningless figure. And certainly the term deficit does not, in fact, mean what it means when we're talking about government budget deficits. When the government runs a budget deficit, the government, and hence the taxpayers, do in fact go further into debt. When Americans run a trade deficit, contrary to what people believe, it is not the case that Americans necessarily go further into debt. But this belief that they do go further into debt, because the name sounds that way, helps demagogues perpetuate really bad trade policies, restrictionist trade policies.
2: A couple of things about our trade accounts. First, virtually every dollar that flows out of the United States to say buy imports flows back. And if it buys our exports, we've got balance trade, so-called, so-called balance, balance trade yeah. in goods or whatever. But if it comes back to buy a U.S. asset, that's not bad. You know, mm-hmm. It means investing in an automobile factory in Tennessee or South Carolina. It means buying a treasury bond, which I don't think government debt is a good thing. But if they're going to go into debt – Foreigners parking their savings here means that there's more savings left over here in the U.S. economy to invest domestically. It's less crowding out and keeps long-term interest rates down, and that's good.
3: And I think China is the largest holder, uh, foreign holder of U.S. treasuries. I think it's over a trillion dollars. Right up
2: there with Japan. They both have about a trillion. You're correct. Yeah, and
3: I know I read something the other day about the bond market isn't reacting. I mean, it looks like the threat this time is not we're going to dump our treasuries because they have dollars, you know, from from the goods we buy from them. I, I had a question for Don and Dan only because I hear this in general conversation. I'm talking about not people who are in the policy world or the economics or journalism world. They say to me, you know, I know tariffs are bad, but China doesn't play by the rules. So what would be a better way to address all this?
0: China, no doubt, like most other governments, like all other governments, subsidizes some of its producers. It imposes import restrictions against imports from other countries. Every country does that, including, by the way, the United States. What free trade means, the very concept of free trade is that a government leaves its own citizens alone and lets their citizens spend their money and invest their money as they choose. The fact that the Chinese government or the German government or the Swiss government, you, well, actually the Swiss government doesn't, you name the government, abuses its citizens with import restrictions and taxes used to fund special interest subsidies does not mean that therefore we should do the same in turn. The rules that the Chinese government breaks when it does this are rules against the proper treatment of its own people. We are not so much harmed by those violations the chinese people are harmed by those Good violations point. yeah and when we retaliate so called we americans are harmed by our government's retaliation not so much the chinese
2: and people have to understand that belonging to the world trade organization doesn't mean that every country has the same trade policies and zero tariffs it wasn't designed that way right. what it means is You can basically have your own trade policy. There's 164 members of the WTO. Some of them have high tariffs. Some of them have virtually zero tariffs. And they're all playing by the rules in the sense that they publish what their tariffs are. They keep them under their commitments, the so-called bound tariffs. They agree to a very important principle of unconditional most favored nation status, and that is if you apply a 10% tariff on imported cars from country X, you apply the same 10% from country Y. So when the U.S. exports to another country, our exporters, they may be facing a tariff, but it's the same tariff that exporters from other countries are facing. And by those rules, China has played by the rules. And by the way, when they joined the WTO in 2001, they signed an accession agreement where they committed to lowering their tariffs significantly. We didn't have to agree to any lowering of our tariffs. I kind of wish we did. Yeah, yeah. We have right. tariffs that, that yeah. need to come down. The USTR, at least the previous USTR, published reports that US showed – U.S. Trade Representative. U.S. Trade Representative. Thank you, Don. That when China joined the WTO and after about 10 years of membership, their tariffs on export goods of U.S. interest, in other words, imports to China that are of a particular interest to the United States dropped from 25 to 7%. Yes, imports from China grew once they join the WTO, but our exports to China have grown such that they are now our number third market in the world uh, for U.S. exported goods, which comes back to the trade war. They have a lot to lose if we put tariffs on their goods, as we do as consumers, but we have a lot to lose as exporters to China in any trade war.
3: Countries can, China, excess steel capacity and dumping, that seems to be a big issue. They subsidize their Favorite industries, and when that happens, WTO members can bring a case right before the WTO, and the WTO can issue what countervailing duties and things like that. Has this been tried with with China and its steel?
2: Carolyn, you're right, but just a, a technical note: the WTO doesn't apply any duties; it's the member countries that That's have right. that, ha- that have the right to impose duties. And again, one of the ironies is we've been pretty aggressive users of these laws. I could critique the anti-dumping laws. I think they're unfair in and of themselves because they penalize other countries for doing practices that are perfectly legal in our domestic market, right? Selling in right. different prices right. in different markets, selling at below average total costs, which any business that's losing money is is yeah, selling yeah, at that. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. And we benefit consumers.
2: Right. By allowing those lower cost goods to come in, right. It really is aimed at goods that are competitively priced. We have been such aggressive users of anti-dumping and countervailing duties, especially against China. Half of the outstanding orders are in behalf of the steel industry. That's why steel imports from China were already pretty low before this whole thing started because we'd use these laws. That's why this this notion that we have to put blanket twenty-five percent tariffs against imported steel because it's being traded unfairly—we have the tools, even though they're abused, and they've been used significantly to go after that. So it's a, it's a phony issue.
3: By all means, let's in, let's invite steel and aluminum executives to the White House and give them the option. Do you want permanent tariffs? Do you want them (laughs) time-limited? Do you want co-quotas? Yeah. I mean, you talk about crony capitalism of, by, and for the crony capitalists. When they did that a, a month ago, and Navarro sort of defended it on this, Peter Navarro, the trade advisor, defended it on the Sunday shows. It was laughable.
2: Yeah, all in the name of national security. What do those people know about national security? They're defending the bottom line of their corporations by misusing government power.
0: Yeah. And let's remind people, again, what you said earlier, Dan, that China, even before the tariffs, were only number 11 on the export list. And it should be pointed out, 70% of the steel bought and used in America is produced right here in America.
2: Correct. Yeah.
0: So this national security claim is a complete ruse. I was looking recently at an old episode of Milton Friedman's great 1980 program. Free to Choose, this is the episode where he's discussing trade. And I forget his exact words, but uh, Friedman in his very unique and wonderful way, said, the minute people start talking about unfair trade, he says, grab your wallet. That's just an excuse for <laughs> for, spe- for special interest groups yes. in, the, in the home country to impose unjustified restrictions on consumers in the home country in order to help a handful of existing domestic producers.
3: I think the defense industry consumes about 3% of domestic steel. Yes. So not only was that a ruse, but shortly after those duties were announced. Trump exempted Mexico, Canada, Australia, stuff like that. So he made a sham of the whole thing.
0: On that, I'll, I'll point out that my former colleague, the Nobel Prize winning economist Vernon Smith, upon learning of these exemptions, wrote on his Facebook, he actually is a very active user of Facebook, even though he's in his early 90s, wrote on his Facebook page, he said, well, this the, the fact that we have these exemptions is proof that the national security claim is a fraud. Huh.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like none of you all are very convinced by the trade deficit arguments. It sounds like the national security arguments for these tariffs, likewise, not very convincing. The other one that I hear most often, and this goes back to what Carolyn mentioned earlier about China not playing by the rules or competing unfairly, has more to do with intellectual property complaints. Yes. Does anybody want to kind of address the idea that there are maybe non-trade components of, of this?
0: I have an unconventional view of that. I think outright theft, of course, is something that should be addressed. But my understanding, and Dan, you can correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding is that the typical way the Chinese government handles this is that they put a requirement on American firms that want access to the Chinese market that those firms must reveal certain of their intellectual property. And the companies can choose to do that or not. If they choose not to, they don't get access to the Chinese market. I view it as a tax. The Chinese are imposing an in-kind tax. On these American companies, I, I'm not a high tax guy. I'm opposed to taxes, but it's a ta- it's a taxes I see it, and like all taxes, it mostly hurts the citizens of the country imposing the tax. This tax makes it less attractive for foreign firms to operate in China, and in the long run that redounds to the detriment of the Chinese people. And so you can argue about the benefit or detriment of a tax, but I just see it as a tax. I wish the Chinese government wouldn't do it, but I think the main people who lose from that are the Chinese people, not us.
3: But Don, the theft part is not what U.S. businesses agree to. It's, as you say, a tax, the cost of doing business, you want access to China, you have to share our intellectual property. Is it not true that then these companies, these Chinese companies, then take that and use that as their own? Is that the theft part of the intellectual property?
0: If American companies voluntarily abide by the regulatory terms that the Beijing government imposes on them, then mm-hmm. it's no more theft than is the agreement right. of any company to abide by whatever regulatory terms the government imposes. I I don't like these terms, but I don't think it's theft in the classic sense of the terms. And by the way, if Acme Corporation, some hypothetical American corporation, chooses to reveal its intellectual property to the Chinese in exchange for access to the Chinese market, Mm -hmm. uh, and then if the Chinese then use that intellectual property or that knowledge to increase their outputs, that makes Americans richer. We get the, the world's the world has more outputs coming from China. Prices are lower, and, and
2: competition is stronger. I agree with Don. I think appropriation might be a, a better term yeah. Than, yeah. Than, okay. than than theft.
3: It's bad reporting then, because I've been I've been confused by that.
2: I mean, theft can happen, but I yes. think primarily yes. what people are talking about with this requirement of joint ventures and sharing of technology. It's interesting. We we went through something like this with Japan thirty years ago. It's a different country. It's a different country than China. It's an ally. It's more of a a rule of law democracy. But what you find is countries wake up to the fact that it is in their interest to both protect intellectual property for the sake of foreign investment, but also their domestic companies. They become a more attractive place for foreigners to invest for true innovation to take place, you know, appropriating or stealing other countries' technology can only take you so far. If you want to be a truly modern economy, you have to develop your own innovative industries. I think the Chinese are realizing that. I think we can acknowledge there's a a problem here, and it's less than optimal. Is an all-out tariff war the way to go about it? And I still don't see much of a connection between the $50 billion worth of imports from China that USTR has targeted for 25% tariffs and the loss of intellectual property, how we're going to somehow get that back through that. There's no no Mm -hmm. connection other than a punitive punishment, and I don't think it's going to work with China. So I've recommended pursuing cases in the WTO, and let's get together with the European Union and Japan and other countries. And by the way, let's stop needlessly aggravating them With these needless trade cases on steel and other, we'd have more friends in the world for these kind of cases, including our NAFTA partners. We can work with the Chinese. I think the Chinese, the Chinese government, has made progress. And by the way, I saw a notation just a few days ago in an article: the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has ranked China about in the middle of fifty developing countries in terms of their treatment of intellectual property. Oh wow! They're not the best. They're not the worst. They're the biggest, Uh so the problem's kind of bigger than other countries, but they're moving in the right direction, and they're not particularly bad as a developing
3: country. We need
2: to put that in perspective. Good point. Do
3: you think China is being, shall I say, strategic, unlike Russia, by targeting soybeans, agricultural exports, Boeing, things like that? I mean, is that a subtle way of having a say in the 2018
2: midterm, I don't think it's too subtle. Yeah, I don't,
3: <laughs> no, but, but I think
2: but, it's very political. Yes.
0: It, yeah, <laughs> but but it's it, yeah, and in terms of you know calling it having a say in the in the midterm, it's what you would expect from any right. government fighting a, a trade war. The whole point of these government actions is to change the behavior of the belligerent opponent. And the Chinese aren't dumb; they understand that they want to make Trump's core base suffer at It's going to hurt Trump more than if the trade restrictions from China, you know, hurt people in California because California is not going to vote for Trump anyway.
2: Yet another irony of Trump trade policy. You go go to classic Trump country, some farm county in the Midwest. You know, we sell over half of our soybean exports to China, one country. Mm -hmm. That's being hit. If you're buying a John Deere tractor, that's going to be more expensive because the steel has gone up by 30%. And oh, by the way, if you want to hire low-skilled foreign-born workers to work in your field because, frankly, Americans aren't interested in working those jobs. I know, Chad, I'm wedging in a separate topic here, but just to show the irony, the Trump administration's hostile to you being able to hire the foreign workers you want. So to get back to Carolyn's issue, I think there's going to be some discontent in Trump country in coming months because of the Trump trade policies. I
0: agree completely, Dan. The only question is, will... Will they draw the connection? Will Trump supporters draw the, draw the connection?
1: So this, this actually gets to what I think each of you have written about sort of separately. And, and the narrative that I'm starting to see emerge is, okay, we're in a trade war. Things are escalating. This can't go on forever. Countries are going to be hurting their own citizens. What's the next step? I see the word negotiation appear a lot. What do those negotiations look like? Who's involved? What's the goal of those negotiations?
2: I think we have some cooling off period. Under the Section 301 tariffs, which are the, the big daddy, the $50 billion tit-for-tat with China, at least the Trump administration is following the outlines of the law here. There's a 60-day comment period. I think the comments are going to be overwhelmingly negative from U.S. industry. Let's hope so. They sh- certainly should be. And there's a chance to negotiate here. The Chinese don't want this. I think some people in the White House may be itching for a trade confrontation. Peter Navarro had this yeah, atrocious right. movie in 2012, "Death by China," with the not so subtle imagery of a knife coming down on the United States and blood flowing out.
1: This could mean anything.
2: From our tra- well, it means <laughs> death by China. He's itching for a fight and an all-out trade war, but I think cooler heads in the administration, certainly in Congress, don't want this. So I think there is room for negotiation. You saw with Korea, I didn't agree with all the changes to the Korean free trade agreement, but the Trump administration came. They didn't blow up the whole thing. It's basically left it intact. So I think, I don't know if it's a 50-50 thing, but there's a chance, a good chance, that we could back away from this before we have an all-out destructive back-and-forth trade war.
3: And what about Trump seeming to link NAFTA, you know, with Mexico and immigration?
1: Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> That's a whole other <coughs> podcast. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll... The St.
3: Louis, Louis—they're just interesting, the St. Louis Fed had a little post uh, on their economy blog today it was talking about the evolution of U.S. agricultural exports. For example, they compared the 90 to 93 period, pre-NAFTA, to the most recent three years. Well, of course, China wasn't, in terms of soybeans, China wasn't even in the top five yes. back then. And now, you know, they're buying almost 60% of U.S. soybean exports. I also noticed that Mexico, which was a very small importer of U.S., well, not small, but relatively small, in the top five of corn, wheat, and soybeans, just jumped hugely, you know. So the idea that it's the, what is it, the worst trade deal, a disaster, the worst trade deal ever signed, I always wanted some reporter to actually push him on that, and ask him why it's
2: so bad. And that's why the U.S. farm sector is terrified at the U.S. withdrawing from NAFTA, because it's been great for them. And just to get back to your point about immigration, you know, Mexican immigration to the United States, legal and illegal, has, has reversed. And there's several reasons behind that, but one of the reasons is Mexico's relative economic stability. NAFTA has been an economic success, but it's also been a foreign policy success for the United States. It has brought the United States and Mexico closer together after, shall we say, a fairly complicated history (laughs) over the decades. That's fair. There was one poll uh, two years ago, two-thirds of Mexicans had a favorable view of the United States. The most recent poll shows that's back down to one-third. One-third of the Mexican public has turned against the United States. You can kind of guess why.
1: I'm going to ask you guys kind of my my wrap-up question here in a little bit. So I start thinking about that. It's going to involve actually getting us out of this mess and what the path forward looks like. But I do want to briefly touch on these multilateral trade agreements since NAFTA has come up. The United States sort of was leading the charge on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and then we suddenly weren't how does this trade this escalating trade war with china affect the existing separate multilateral trade negotiations that are going on in other words we've talked a lot about the domestic effects of this trade war what are the sort of second order ramifications in the international community
0: most obvious thing that occurs to me is when you take the united states because it is such a large and prominent player on the world stage when it loses its credibility with other Countries, it's going to take like when like when anyone loses credibility, it takes a while to get it back. So even if we have another president starting in twenty twenty one who's interested in restoring the pre Trump status quo, I think it might take a while for us to get our credibility back because the United States was so volatile and uncredible recently about trade, and so it just makes us a makes our government a partner that is less attractive for other governments to want to deal with, and that's not good for us in the long run by any means
2: that's why this administration is not finding willing partners to negotiate new trade agreements japan's basically told us they're not interested in negotiating yeah. a bilateral one of the greatest disservices i think of the trump administration on trade policy is to it is is its criticism of these trade agreements they have been great for the United States. They have lifted the standard of living Americans. They've delivered lower prices, particularly to low-income families who spend a larger share of their budget on tradable items. They've opened up export markets around the world. You know, the Typical country that we sign a free trade agreement with has higher trade barriers than we do when we sign the agreement. So even from the mercantilist point of view of the administration, these trade agreements are making them lower their trade barriers more than us. Don and Carolyn, and I would all agree that's good for both countries all, and all
3: around. And withdrawing from the Trans-Pacific Partnership that was with Asian countries ex-China. Yes. You know, and Trump seems to want to punish China. This agreement was something that would have perhaps helped China toe the line.
2: Carolyn, that's trade irony number twelve of the Trump (laughs) administration. (laughs) the The Trans-Pacific Partnership it it wasn't a hostile act towards China, but it was a way of creating an alternative arrangement in that part of the world, drawing the major trading countries in that part of the world more towards the U.S. model of free trade, zero tariffs. Protection of intellectual property, discouraging state-owned enterprises, and all that. What did we do by withdrawing from it? The other 11 countries have gone ahead and signed the agreement, which means, by the way, beef producers in Australia will will pay far lower tariffs to enter the Japanese market than the U.S. will. We put ourselves at a disadvantage, but it also has enhanced China's influence. We've withdrawn. China is filling the vacuum. One of the great ironies is now there's even talk of China joining the Trans-Pacific yeah, Partnership.
1: Right. Ironhound with 13. Out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. yeah. So now that we've successfully painted a pretty gloomy picture of the, of the path forward, I want to I leave our listeners with a little bit of hope. So we just have a, a minute or two left to cover this. But other than just sort of going to the, the WTO, Dan, which you mentioned, what are the other sort of immediate next steps that U.S. policymakers can or should make to, to improve the situation?
3: Hope that Trump listens to Larry Kudlow. I don't, I, you know, yes. again, he seems so determined whether he'll push the button in the long run. I just don't know.
0: Yeah, I'm, uh, I don't have much in the way of optimism to share on this front, Chad. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, yeah, I, you know, sticking as closely as possible to the, to the rules and protocol of the WTO would be, would be the thing to do. Trump does not seem to have much of an inclination to do that. He, he wants to act unilaterally when it suits him and when he thinks it plays with his base.
2: But, you know, we've had this half-hour discussion of trade policy, and we have not mentioned the branch of government that is explicitly charged with trade policy in the Constitution, and that's the The, U.S. Congress. Yes, yes. U.S. Congress, and I have to say, in particular, the Republican leadership in Congress has been missing in action in this. They have ceded trade policy to a president who's gone rogue on trade. The Founding Fathers never conceived that a president would be Issuing tariffs against this country and that and abusing these different laws, I'm not very hopeful, but under ideal circumstances, Congress would reclaim its authority over trade policy and take away from this president the powers that he's been abusing on trade. There, there actually has been some bills introduced to repeal the tariffs, the steel tariffs, to require congressional approval before the president can slap tariffs willy-nilly on all these countries, sadly to say, those bills are are going nowhere. So I think we're stuck. We still have some limits on what the president can do. We have the courts. We have our international agreements. But unfortunately, I think uh, things may get worse before they get better.
0: Yeah. And keep in mind, this is the same Congress that was, was so adamantly opposed to the seizure of administrative power by the Obama administration. But somehow when, when, when Trump does it, they remain silent and missing in action, as says. You,
2: you know, a silver lining in all this is some of our Democratic friends are waking up to the virtues of free trade.
0: Yes, that's true. (laughs) The
2: polls show that public support for free trade, it's still a majority, but the composition has shifted. Republicans are more skeptical. Democrats are more supportive. So maybe when – if we have a change in government, the Democrats will decide. They were the free trade trade party for for most most of of our history. history. That's correct. Let us out of the protectionist wilderness after World War II. Let's hope they rediscover their free trade – and trade not only as an instrument of economic development, but as an instrument of
1: world peace. Well, that is a...
3: a Chad, b- you could call this uh, the Ironies of Trade if you need a title. <laughs> <for this story. laughs>
1: there you yeah. go. I'm, I'm going to take that, uh, that finishing note from Dan Griswold as our shred of optimistic hope, the light at the end of the tunnel, dim though it may be if you ask Dr. Boudreaux to my right here. And that'll have to be it for now. I do want to make sure that our listeners can follow everyone's work. After this, so starting with Carolyn, let's just kind of go around and let people know where they can keep up with your latest online.
3: If you go to marketwatch.com and just type in Carolyn Baum, it'll bring you all my columns. And on Twitter, it's CABaum1.
2: And if you go to the Mercatus website and go to my profile page, you can see all the things I've done recently. And also you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel Griswold.
0: Yeah, I don't have a Twitter account, but I do have a pretty active blog, uh, Cafe Hayek. It's one word, C-A-F-E-H-A-Y-E-K.com.
1: Sounds great. And as always, I am happy to hear your complaints, concerns, ideas, compliments, feedback, show ideas. You can email me at reese at mercatus.gmu.edu or find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese. Thank you all.